Hello, thank you for listening to this sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allow you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. For those who don't know me, my name is Pastor David, the associate pastor here at West Hill. Um, I am not the one preaching today. just want to continue to, to mention to keep praying for the Varners as Pastor Aaron is on sabbatical. That is almost coming to an end, crazily enough. Um, it seems like it has flown by, at least for us um, as staff, and we are looking forward to, to having him back. And we just continue to pray that it's been a, a restful time for, for Pastor Aaron and his family. Um, it is my privilege today to introduce you to our, our speaker today, Calvin Anthony. Um, the connection there, because you guys probably don't know him. <laughs> the connection there is Dan Anthony has Dan Anthony, his dad. All right, you're gonna have to follow along with me here, okay? So focus. <laughs> Dan Anthony, his dad, has preached here before. He has really good friends with Pastor Aaron. Uh, went to BBC together um, as well. Uh, his son Hunter actually led worship two weeks um, a while back for us. Uh, did an awesome job with that. So now his other son. Calvin is going to uh, lead us uh, in bringing us God's word today, so we're very excited to have him, and I'll let him introduce himself a little more as he gets up here, but would you please join me in welcoming Calvin Anthony, please? You can clap, it's okay. I think we're on. Morning, my name is Calvin. Um, I've known Pastor Aaron for years and years and years. Um, many of you probably don't know this, but in that gym back there, he challenged me to basketball, and I humbly let him beat me. However, if you ask him about that story, he tells it a little differently. Uh, our sermon text for today is Deuteronomy 5.29. I will be reading starting in verse 22. Deuteronomy 5.22 through 29. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added, No more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man and still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say. And speak to us that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. Let's pray. O oh Lord God, we come before your mighty and awesome throne with boldness and humility, asking for that which only you can give us. Give us hearts that fear you. Amen. Spring in Louisville, Kentucky is one of the oddest 
seasons. It can be 95 and sunny, and then the next day, all the water in the world is dumped on you in the form of rain. And then the very next day is 95 and sunny like nothing ever happened. These drastic changes in weather cause two things quite often, tornadoes and thunderstorms. Although we li I live in Cleveland where we have rain and abundance, the lightning and thunder in Louisville is incomparable. One night I was sitting outside and lightning struck about 100 yards from where I was sitting. It was instantly daytime and at the same time one of the loudest noises I have ever heard booms louder than an F-16 fighter jet flying directly overhead. In that moment, I was fearful. I came face to face with the extraordinary power of the Almighty God. In this verse of Deuteronomy, we see the Israelites experiencing something similar. God's presence descended onto Mount Sinai so that the mountain shook with thunder and lightning and fire. So afraid were the Israelites that they pleaded with Moses to intercede with them before God, lest they die. This fear is a good fear, God says in Deuteronomy 5.28. Israel was first, God's firstborn son. Consider Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called my son. In Deuteronomy 14.1, you are sons of the Lord your God. God chose Israel before she was a nation and made her into a great nation. However, we know that Israel did not fulfill God's purposes for her. The book of Deuteronomy is a reaffirmation of the covenant that Israel made with God at Sinai. The children of the wilderness generation were affirming their loyalty and covenant with Yahweh. In chapter 5, Moses reminds the Israelites of the Ten Commandments and repeats to them what their fathers said to Moses when the presence of the Lord descended on Mount Sinai. I will seek to discuss our text this morning under two main headings, the fear of the Lord and the heart that fears the Lord. The fear of the Lord and the heart that fears the Lord. Number one, in order to understand what it means to rightly fear God, I think that it's important to know what fearing God does not entail. As John Bunyan writes in his book, A Treatise on the Fear of God, man being a reasonable creature and having even by nature a certain knowledge of God also has something naturally of some kind of fear of God at all times, which although it is not that which is intended ought to be spoken to so that that which is not right fear may be distinguished from that which is. These two different fears can be illustrated in Exodus 20. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and not sin. Notice Moses' distinction between fear and being afraid. Ungodly fear. There is a type of fear always in men which arises in them in response to God's rule over their lives which does not honor God. Instead, this fear causes them to cower before God and hide from him. Consider Adam in the garden. After Adam sinned by eating the fruit, God called out to him saying, Adam, where are you? And Adam responded, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam's fear caused him to hide from God. His fear drove him away from God. This is ungodly fear. Ironically, Adam tried to hide his nakedness from the God who sees all. Is this not what we try to do in our own lives? Do we not try to keep these petty sins secret from the Lord? You know, the sins that we can still get to heaven with? Maybe I'm a little greedy, but I don't even make that much money. Yeah, sure, this show on Netflix is edgy, but no one will see me watching it. 
Maybe I'm a little lustful, but no one will notice the small looks. Yes, I know I should respect and honor my husband, but he doesn't even notice the subtle manipulation. Maybe I'm harboring bitterness in my heart, but I don't let it out. Yes, I know that God commands me to love my wife, but she thinks I'm loving, so that's enough, right? I know I could get an A on this assignment, but no one will know that a B is not my best work. This type of fear is afraid of God's judgment against sin, but is not willing to do anything about it. So instead, it grumbles and complains against God and seeks to justify sin and hide it from him. Consider Israel in the wilderness, complaining against God about being hungry. God fed them food from heaven, and yet they complained about the food. You can almost hear them. Well, yeah, sure, God is giving us as much food as we need, but it's getting old. How does God expect us to eat this stuff every day? Doesn't he know the Egyptians had better food? He won't even let us eat pork, and now we're stuck with bird and wafers? Are you serious? This quail isn't even fried. The fear of God led to ungodliness in the form of complaining and grumbling, and God almost destroyed them several times for it. This ungodly fear is also the fear that unbelievers have. Romans 1 tells us that all people know God because God has made himself known to them. Yet unbelievers do not honor God or give thanks to him in response, so they fear wrongly. John Colquhoun notes that this fear regards God more as an avenging judge than as a compassionate friend and father. The unbeliever denies the existence of God and so rejects him and runs from him. This can be seen in many atheists who are scared of the possibility of an all-knowing God who will hold them accountable for their every action. They see God as a mean-spirited judge who will condemn everything they do. This fear can also drive some atheists to religiosity. They, can, they will pretend to be religious, even come to church every week, yet have no right fear of God in their hearts. Ungodly fear does not have enough reverence for God to obey all of his commands. Remember the Israelites at Moab. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses reminds the people of the blessings that will accompany obedience to the covenant and the curses that will accompany disobedience. There is a reason that around three-fourths of the verses in Deuteronomy 28 are curses. Why is this the case? Because it is much easier not to keep the whole covenant as God requires. James picks up on this reasoning when he says, Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one part is guilty of breaking all of it. God requires us to keep the whole law, not just some of it, not just most of it, but all of it. And we know that we cannot. We don't even have to be told that we cannot. Our own consciences bear witness against us. This is why God desires that his people fear and tremble at him. God must punish sin. He is a just God, and his wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, against those who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. So when unbelievers think about the wrath of God, they tremble in their unbelief. This fear does not cause them to turn to God in faith, but to turn away from him in fear. This fear, uh, this is the essence of ungodly sinful fear. As Michael Reeves writes in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, people with this sinful fear of God will not then, turn, will not then trust in Christ for their salvation. They will look elsewhere. They will look to the law, to their own efforts, or anything or anyone but Christ. This sinful fear also leads to what Michael Reeves calls the dread of holiness. This fear is the fear of putting sin to death. John Owen famously wrote in his book, 
the mortification of sin. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The thing is, we like our sin. We find pleasure in it. If sin were not pleasurable, then it would not be desirable. There's a famous scene I've come to love in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. In this scene, one of the characters named Ghost is confronted by an angel who wants to kill the little lizard of lust on his shoulder. The ghost makes many, many excuses as to why the lizard should not be killed. And to each, the angel replies, may I kill it? But it's just a small lizard. May I kill it? But it's very quiet. May I kill it? You get the picture. Ghost replies that he will gradually kill the lizard on his own. The angel replies to Ghost, the gradual process is of no use at all. On and on the conversation goes until finally Ghost comes to the realization that it is better to die than to live with the lizard whispering in his ear. Ghost finally gives the angel permission to kill the lizard. Once the lizard is dead on the ground, the form of Ghost changes into a solid man, and the dead lizard changes into a mighty stallion upon which Ghost, now man, rides off into the horizon. In this scene, Ghost moves from ungodly, sinful fear to godly, righteous fear. This fear moves him to put his sin to death. The same is true of us. When we begin to fear God rightly, when we begin to hate sin. This leads us to our discussion of godly, righteous fear. Godly fear. Fear is one of the most powerful emotions that man can feel. It can paralyze us, or it can cause us to become hyper-alert and cause adrenaline to rush through our veins and put us in fight-or-flight mode. So, too, the fear of God will cause us to do much more than we otherwise would. It was the fear of God that caused David to fear God more than Goliath. It was the fear of the Lord that caused Paul to boldly proclaim the hostile the gospel to hostile Gentile crowds. It was the fear of the Lord that caused all of the apostles but one to be martyred. It was the fear of the Lord that has caused tens of thousands of Christians to accept death rather than fear man and live. And it is the fear of the Lord today that causes Christians to boldly confront the spirit of the age in the sexual revolution and abortion movements. This leads us to ask, what is this godly fear of the Lord? First and foremost, this godly fear is the belief that God exists and rules the world. James says that even the demons have this fear, so we know that it is not enough. We know from Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2 that fearing the Lord leads to loving him and obeying his commands. We also know that we are commanded to fear God more than man because God is able to destroy the soul. But this has not gotten us any farther in actually defining what this godly fear of the Lord is. We must first think of God rightly if we are to then fear him rightly. This God is the eternal God who has life from and within himself. He is not dependent upon any creature for anything, not knowledge, love, life, or anything else. I joke with my friends at school by telling them that God does not exist, meaning he finds life from outside of himself, but rather that he subsists, meaning he finds life inside of himself. God does not need creation. He is triune, holy, loving, just, righteous, good, beautiful, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, and on and on and on we can go. However, I think that there are two attributes in particular and one principle that we must focus on if we are to rightly fear God. Holiness is one of the overarching principles which best describes God. That is not to say that it is more important or necessary than any other attribute, but holiness is the only attribute used in the superlative in the scripture. God is the most holiest. My theology professor often says 
that God's holiness refers to, refers to his sheer godness. Holiness is closely associated first with God's existence and nature, and secondly to his moral purity. Isaiah was privileged to gaze into the throne room of God. And what does he see? Seraphim, or angels, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah then says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. And at the end of the ages, we see a similar scene. The four beasts surrounding the throne of God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We must first behold God's holiness because it is the key to all of his other attributes. If God's love were not a holy love, it would indeed be reckless. If God's justice were not a holy justice, then God is able to justify and condemn whoever he wants, whenever he wants. He is able to change his standard of justice. If God's justice were not a holy justice, it means that he could arbitrarily require something more than Christ's sacrifice to atone for sins. Praise God that this is not the case. Instead, God's holiness means that only he himself can meet his holy demands. Only he can fill the requirements of the covenant. Only he can atone for sin. This is a glorious truth. The second overarching attribute is the goodness of God. Again, this does not mean that his goodness is more important than other attributes. Instead, it means that he is the absolute standard of good and morality. God defines what is good because God himself is good. God's goodness is revealed in his mercy and grace to all people, his common grace to all, and his saving grace to us who believe. God's goodness is also revealed in his love. It was out of the goodness of his love that God sent his son to atone for the sins of his people. It was out of the goodness of his love that God sustains our faith and allows us the strength to trust him faithfully. In addition to all of this, it is the goodness of God that causes us to fear him as a loving father and give us a desire to please him. Just as a loving and good son fears his father and wants to honor and obey him, so too ought we fear God and desire to honor and please him because of his goodness to us. As Jesus said to the rich young ruler, no one is good but God alone. Paul says in Romans 2 that God's kindness, closely associated with his goodness, is meant to lead us to repentance. God's holiness reveals our sin and moral purity, and God's goodness leads us to come to him who alone can atone for our sins. How wonderful is our God. And the last principle that we need to keep in mind is the creator-creature distinction. God is utterly transcendent and other than us. We must not allow ourselves to smudge the line between God and creature. And there are many more attributes that we could discuss. However, if you would like to learn more, I highly commend Matthew Barrett's book, None Greater to You. Number two, the heart that fears the Lord. This discussion of fear leads us to our second point, the heart that fears the Lord. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all of my commandments. God desires his people to have a heart that fears him. This is true not just of the Israelites, but as of us as well. The problem is, just as the Israelites in the wilderness, godly fear does not come naturally to any of us. 
It is not that some are born with it and can teach it to others. It is not that some learn it eventually after enough life experience. None of us can learn the fear of the Lord on our own. Not a single one of us. So how do we get this fear of the Lord? I think there's a hint in our verse. God knew that the old covenant would never ultimately be enough for his people to fear him rightly. The author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. And even later in Deuteronomy, God says that he will circumcise the hearts of the Israelites so that they would love him with all their heart and with all their soul. This language is picked up by Paul in the New Testament when he speaks of the new covenant. The seeds of the new covenant were sown in the old. Hear what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be my God and or I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let me repeat some of these phrases again. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In the new covenant, God is the one who teaches his people to fear him rightly. God gives his people his spirit and a new heart and causes them to walk according to his ways. God is the one who forgives his people's sins. God is the one who draws his people near. There is no mixed new covenant community. All are believers. All will know God because God himself will teach us. This is glorious. The new covenant is greater in every way to the old covenant. Consider what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The obligations and consequences of the old covenant were great. There are 39, 39 books telling of the covenant regulations, calling the people back to the covenant, and condemning them for their disobedience. This is the logic of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is a greater high priest than Aaron and his sons. Jesus is a greater priest than Melchizedek. Jesus is a greater sacrifice than bulls and goats. So then the covenant that Jesus mediates is much greater than the old covenant. But we can know all about the heart that fears the Lord and how we receive it and not have a clue yet what it looks like. As I mentioned earlier, the person with a heart that fears the Lord is not satisfied with sin. This person is not satisfied with sin, great or small, and will seek to destroy every hint of it that appears in his life. Practically, this looks like controlling one's tongue, even though small sins with the tongue are culturally appropriate and even encouraged. 
For example, as I discussed earlier, holiness is the attribute that best describes the essence of God's being. And yet we use this word to refer to cows and excrement. How dare we? Additionally, we often exclaim, oh my gosh, as if God doesn't know what we actually mean when we say it. Yes, it is difficult to master the tongue in this way. I have been trying to refrain from using these phrases for a couple of weeks now, and it is extremely difficult. Yet consider what James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. The tongue is the most difficult instrument to control. It is even set on fire by hell, James says. Instead of asking whether what we say is sin, we should ask whether it brings glory to God. Jesus says that on the day of judgment, we will give an account for every careless word that we speak. Paul gives us a much higher standard for speech than our culture deems acceptable or even virtuous. He commands, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking among you, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. He goes on to say, look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. If the days of Paul were evil, how much more evil are our days? Let us therefore speak as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and given hearts to fear the Lord. If you don't know the fear of the Lord, and you think you're the only one who knows, you're not. God knows. Consider the words of Hebrews. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Stop running from God because you fear him as an avenging judge, and run to him like the good, compassionate father that he is. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Stop your striving and turn to him while it is still day. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time for repentance. Do not wait. Turn to God and be saved. And you hypocrites who claim to fear the Lord and even outwardly obey his commands, repent. Hear once again the, voice, the words of Hebrews. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and have proclaimed, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God sees your heart. Like Adam, you sow fig leaves of works to cover your nakedness from the God who sees all. You will be condemned on the last day. God is not mocked. Stop the act. Fear God and obey his commands. Let God be true and every man a liar. Turn from your sinful ways and live. God is near to you. He is commanding you to repent. All you must do is stop your sinful self-reliance and turn to God in trust and in faith. And he will welcome you as a father welcomes home a long-lost son. And to those who are discouraged, who feel alone in fearing the Lord, press on. Moses was opposed by his own brother and sister. David was opposed by his own brothers. 
and yet God defended them. He will do the same for you on the last day. This life is momentary. Fix your eyes upon him who wrote and will perfect your faith on the last day. Keep your eyes on the end. We run as to receive a prize imperishable. We long for the day when it will all be worth it, when God will wipe every tear from our eyes and give us the affirmation our souls so desperately long for. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we know that we cannot fear you unless you teach us. So enroll us in your school. Lead us and guide us into a deeper fear and trust in you. Cleanse us of our sinful self-reliance and save us from our sins. Your son's blood is enough. Your grace is sufficient. Lead us to the rock that is higher than us. You are our rock and our shield. So we will not fear when the earth shakes or the mountains are thrown into the midst of the sea. For you have called us and we are yours. Your people, the sheep under your care, draw our hearts to you this morning. Be glorified, O God, be glorified. Amen.